big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Michelle, Ruth, and Ava. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like them and get access to our notes, outtakes, Jane Austen-themed cocktail recipes, and more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 44 and 45 of Sense and Sensibility. I promised you I was going to read you all the vegan treats you can order from the vegan bodega. Right, right. Listeners, you catch us at a hungry time, usually. So this is under vegan treats available. Help. Vegan carrot and cream cupcake. I want that. I saw that this morning when I was getting my burrito. Vegan red velvet cupcake. Oh, no. Vegan chocolate mint chip cupcake. Oh. Vegan chocolate peanut butter mousse cupcake. Oh, wait. Vegan carrot cake, which I believe is a slice of the same thing the cupcake mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Vegan cookies and cream Oreo cake. Vegan death by chocolate cake. Vegan French silk cheesecake. Vegan peanut butter mousse bomb cake. It says in parentheses, big slice. Big slice. Big slice. Vegan chocolate chip cookie. Vegan oatmeal raisin cookie. Vegan banana chocolate chip cookie. Vegan caramel chip cookie. Vegan peanut butter cookie. Vegan mint chocolate cookie. Vegan peanut butter cup brownie. Vegan peanut butter mousse brownie. Vegan cheesecake brownie. Vegan triple chocolate brownie. Vegan pumpkin whoopie pie. Vegan white cream whoopie whoopie pie. I can't say whoopie pie, apparently. Vegan chocolate cannoli. Vegan tiramisu. Vegan donuts. Vegan cinnamon or pecan buns. Guys, I have been with many lovers in my lifetime, but I've never had anybody look at me with more arousal than Molly is looking at me right now. (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This morning I went to the vegan bodega. We call it the vegan bodega. It's just a normal bodega that has a lot of vegan options. They're the nicest people too. They're so nice. And I went there this morning because I had a morning and I was like, I want, I deserve a burrito. So I went for a breakfast burrito and I was looking at the, the, like the, What's it called? Display. The display? Yeah, the pastry display. And I was like, I see these that the cinnamon bun is vegan and that the pecan bun is vegan. And I was like, man, I wish everything else in this display was vegan because it like it all looks so good. But I guess only those two things are vegan because nothing else was labeled. But you just I was I was looking at the Oreo cake and I was like, that's what I want to eat. And now I know it's vegan and we're going to have to order it's okay. I am probably going to order a vegan brownie <laughs> because I read it and I I was excited. I won't lie to you. <laughs> We're hungry. Yeah, I'm in the the thing is that I'm not hungry, but I'm thinking about cake now and I my, my eyes are watering a little bit. Your eyes are watering yes. and your mouth is no, my watering. Eyes are watering. <laughs> 
I get emotional about my Oreo cakes, okay? Speaking of emotions. Speaking of emotions, <laughs> really good time. Really good segue. segue. Yeah. Really good segue. <laughs> This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Sense and Sensibility chapters 44 and 45 or volume 3 chapters 8 and 9. I'm so proud that you looked that up ahead of time. It helps that I read the chapters last night. Yes. Oh, okay. Just a quick heads up. There is some weird sound happening outside. It's either like a plane that's going over very slowly or a... Uh, there's a ghost that's just really upset, like, right outside. Okay, okay. One, I kind of hear that. I also have an ear infection, so, like, I, might, I like, one, have a sinus infection, two, my ear is infected, so, like, not great on the hearing and smelling things. However, I want to do a book recommendation, which I think is fun for our bookish listeners. I'm currently reading... Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Klune, and um, Becca can attest that I have been feeling my feelings about it. It's really, really good. She's audiobooking it, and I'll walk into the kitchen, and she'll just have her earbuds in, and she'll just be, like, quietly on the verge of tears, but smiling. Yeah, like, that's that's pretty much how to describe this book. Like, I will... It feels... It's sad, but in the most warm and fuzzy, comforting way. Like, I can't help but feel happy while listening to this heart-wrenching novel. Ah, wonderful. But we're talking about a different novel today. For those of you joining us for the first time, I, Becca, have read a lot of Jane Austen books. And I, Molly, have not read any before doing this podcast, but now I've read almost two. If you want to listen to Molly read through Pride and Prejudice for the first time, you can check out season one of this podcast, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Sense and Sensibility, which is heated. And emotional. <laughs> this chapter is one that I had in my back pocket and I was like going along so excited for you to get here for so long and we're here. We're here and last night I was reading it and I texted Becca, this is longer. Are you sure you want to do two? Because I have a lot to say. <laughs> but the second one is luckily a short chapter so we're going to be fine. But this chapter I have a lot to say. Oh, there are a lot of things to say about uh, Mr. John Willoughby. John. <laughs> Listeners, you might remember that last episode ended with us seeing Willoughby again suddenly for the first time in, what, 20 chapters? Yeah, and being like, whomst? Exactly. Whomst? Whomst the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> it sounds like it means something different from what I mean it to mean. No, it's perfect. It means something absolutely perfect. <laughs> the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. Well, it's Willoughby, so probably somebody. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. So I guess other than like really lusting after vegan desserts, there's not much to do other than start this up. Yes. So chapter 44, which I really hope is correct because I said it with such confidence at the start of this episode. Eleanor has just run downstairs to see Willoughby and she immediately turns to leave. It says she walks into the room. She sees him. She says, nope, about face. She turns around. <laughs> She just yeets herself back. She's like, oh, nope, not that. <laughs> not that. Anyone else. And he tells her to stay. It said he said it with a tone of assertion. And I was like, fuck you, right off the bat. I will say this. This is one of the scenes that reminds me that Sense and Sensibility made an excellent stage play. 
just like the way it is, it's so dramatic and theatrical. Bedlam did that, right? I believe so. So Eleanor is like, no, you can't possibly have business with me. And he's like, no, my business is only with you. And she's like, what? Okay, I guess so. But just be quick and calm down because he is aggravated. And she feels nervous that if he stays, Colonel Brandon is going to get back and see him there. And that's going to be really awkward for all of the reasons that that would be awkward. Not just awkward. Last time they saw each other, they dueled. They dueled! <laughs> I forgot they dueled! Because there's like a casual little duel in the middle of this fucking book. Wait, they dueled. Did Colonel Brand- Was Colonel Brandon like... I mean, he was mad at Willoughby about, obviously, his daughter... But, like, he was kind of also like, how dare you do this to Marianne? It's a combo. Marianne's not entirely out of that equation. It is primarily about impregnating his ward. Mm -hmm. But it is also about Marianne Dashwood's honor. It's a combo plate. It's like if Eliza's pregnancy is the general so's chicken, then the Marianne Dashwood is the side of pork fried rice. Yeah, or if the Eliza is the Eliza pregnancy is the Oreo cake and Marianne Dashwood's honor is the vegan brownie. I was going to say the glass of vegan milk that goes with the Oreo cake. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. But nobody really drinks milk straight, right? I think it happens occasionally. I guess a good glass of almond milk I could do. One of my former roommates used to drink milk like how other people drink water which I didn't think anyone had done since 1995. So she sits down and they sit in silence for a while. And after a minute or two, she's like, okay, come on. Like, really, you got to just go for it. And he says, is Marianne really out of danger? And the way that he's asking, again, begs the question, is Marianne pregnant? That is definitely a way to read it. I also would read it as him just being like, please just tell me she's okay. I know, but he's like, so self-interested and yes both I don't think that Marianne is pregnant (laughs) I don't know so after she tells him that Marianne is in fact okay he's like oh god if I had known half an hour ago but I'm here anyway so let's rejoice in the fact that Marianne is okay do you think I'm a knave or a fool and Eleanor is like go home Willoughby you're drunk (laughs) and he's like yeah I'm drunk I had a pint of beer at lunch in Marlborough. And she's like, Marlborough, which is, I guess, pretty far away. And he's like, yeah, I've been on the road since 8 a.m. And he's clearly not drunk. So she says, what are you doing here then? And he says he's here to make her hate him by one degree less than she does now, which I don't think is possible. And he's there to apologize for, quote, though I have always been a blockhead. I have not always been a rascal. And he wants to give Marianne's forgiveness. I do think, I would disagree with you. I think it is possible for her to hate him a little less than she does now because of the amount she hates him. Sure, sure, sure. It's like he can take it down a decibel because there's so much room for improvement. Right. I guess it's not possible for me to hate him any less. That's fair. Yeah. That's very fair. But he did not wrong my sister. He wronged your Marianne. He wronged your fictional character. He did. This fictional character wronged my other one. So she tells him that if that's the case, Marianne has long forgiven him, which I'm like, has she? And Willoughby also says, has she? Then she's done it without reason. Like, she forgave me too soon. Let me actually justify myself. 
And he launches into what can only be described as a sob story. Yes. I couldn't read this not in like a whiny voice. Mm, at first all I wanted was to bang, but then she was so cool. But then my feelings got in the way. I will say, even though we're making fun of Willoughby, I am going to read one of my favorite lines from this book. I wonder if it's one I underlined. It might be, but... They- Go first. Go first a little bit. Okay. So basically what we just whined for like three or four pages, he says, first, he was just trying to flirt. He knew that she liked him, but he didn't ever intend to return her affections or actually be with her. He explains that he's kind of always lived outside his means, which I can't, you know, that's his own dang fault, but he's hung out with rich people. He's gambled. He's done all this stuff. And he didn't know when his aunt was going to die. That could be a while off, and that's when he's supposed to inherit the estate. So he had resolved to marry Rich, and that's why he knew he could not marry Marianne. He says, at that time, he didn't know how much pain he was inflicting on her because he didn't then know what it was to love. So he, you know, decided to marry Rich and in doing so lose all chances of actually having happiness because he did fall in love with Marianne, which is kind of the opposite of what's happened to Eddie. We're going to stick a pin in that point and yes. return to it in the study questions because it's it's an astute observation. And it, But there's, there's some ways in which it's the opposite of Eddie and some ways in which it's the same as Eddie, in which we'll get to. So Eleanor asks, did he actually love her at one point? And then that leads to uh, one of my favorite lines. You did then, said Eleanor, a little softened, believe yourself at one time attached to her. To have resisted such attractions, to have withstood such tenderness. Is there a man on earth who could have done it? Yes, I found myself, by insensible degrees, sincerely fond of her. And the happiest hours of my life were what I spent with her when I felt my intentions were strictly honorable and my feelings blameless. Disgusting, but I think interesting. You delve. I think these chat this chapter in particular is really, really fascinating for a lot of reasons that we'll again get into in the study questions. But to hint at it here, Willoughby is a villain, very obviously. But he's a villain who gets depth. He's a villain who gets minor redeeming qualities, which is kind of rare in a lot of Austin's literature. Compare him to Wickham, for example. That's what I'm doing in my head. What Wickham doesn't get, which Willoughby does, is explanation. Uh, A chance to show his side of the story. And I think the way she writes this line is so fascinating, particularly the way he tells the story, especially juxtaposing it against how Colonel Brandon told his story, a story of honor and love and devotion against Willoughby's selfish story, but his selfish story still involves him falling in love and the way he says it is so deep. There are even moments throughout this story where I felt a little bit bad for him, but then he would like say something snooty and I would immediately retract my bad feelings for him, but I get it. I mean, he does prove that he actually did love Marianne. Yeah, I think it's not about excuse. It's about explanation. Ooh. Yes. Yes. Ooh, we get into it with the excuses. So after he says that, he tells her he fully had intended to propose. Like, he was like, yeah, I'm going to profess my love to her. But he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off because he knew that he had to marry Rich. I think it's in this case because he didn't 
have anything to offer her. Right, because he didn't have anything to offer yet with the estate not being his. And he was kind of banking on that in the future, but he was just putting it off and he knows it was silly. And he he's like, I won't stop for you to expatiate, which means to speak at length in, or in detail about how wrong he was for not engaging his faith where his honor was already bound. Another line that made me wonder if they banged. You know, it's not clear is it? I think they banged. I think there's a there's a very fair reading of this book saying that Marianne and Willoughby were banging. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So finally, he has resolved to do it in his story. He's like walking home one day and he's like, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to tell Marianne how I feel. Next time I can be alone with her, I'm going to tell her. And then an unlucky circumstance occurs and Mrs. Smith finds out. And at this point, he looks at Eleanor and he's like, you probably know what I'm talking about. And she's like, uh-huh but I don't know how you can possibly explain this one away. I love this part because it's like Eleanor's like softening to him as he's like waxing poetic about her sister. And then he's like, and you know this next part. And she's like, oh yeah, you're awful. Yeah. Oh yeah. You (laughs) knocked up a 14 year old and then left her. Fuck you. (laughs) So literally all my notes from this point on are just like, shut up. Stop talking like he keeps he keeps at intervals being like, I don't mean to explain it away or I don't mean to try to get you to forgive me. And I'm like, then stop talking like you're saying you're not trying to redeem yourself, but you are. And it's not working. You're just talking yourself into a deeper hole. I mean, yeah, I think. But I I don't know. I love this chapter because he's he's a man of passions and he's not a good man. No. Yes. Yes. I love the chapter, too, because like we love to hate him. Oh, we do. We love to hate him. And like the. There's a piece of you that reads these parts and is like, oh, man, you are a passionate man. Like, there's something about him. He's the bad boy. But, like, Austin does it really well of making it like, oh, he's just a weenie enough to remind you that he's a weenie. He's a weenie. He's exactly a weenie. He is such a weenie. He whines and he weenies and... More like weenie bee, am I right? Weenie bee. Weenie bee. Weenie bee. (laughs) Oh, man, I hate him, but I, like, I am attracted to him. It's, ah. I mean, we've been over this. Willoughby is hot. Willoughby is a bad man. But Willoughby is not a man without his own internal monologue. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, if there was anyone to be self-destructive about, it would be him. Also, like, we all know this guy. Oh, boy, do we. Yeah, like, this guy went to college with us. You know, <laughs> this whole book is just us shitting on the guys we went to college with. But you know what? It's fine. I'm yeah, not, I'm not going to argue it. So anyway, OK, Whew. he says, first of all, now we're talking about him having knocked up uh, little Eliza and then leaving her to rot. And he says, first of all, you heard that from a source that could not be impartial. So just, you know, not that I need to justify myself or anything, but she was not a saint either. This this part's like, first of all, it's not true. Second of all, it was her fault. Second of all, he basically calls her and I'm going to use some words that I think are that I would not use. But he's basically calling her a slut. He's calling her dumb. It feels gross to say, but he says she doesn't have the what is what are the words? Um. She has violence of passions and weakness of understanding. And like, this was her fault too. Basically degrading this 14, 14, 14 year old girl who he seduced. She did not do anything wrong, obviously. I think all of our listeners know this. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think like any, what, 25 year old man who is like, I know you think 
that I'm at fault for leaving and abandoning this 14-year-old girl I impregnated, mm. but really, she was the instigator. I, I would say that everyone who hears that sentence would and should take that with a grain of salt. Yes. So he's saying all of this shit. Also, so I tweeted, well, after reading these last night, I tweeted that the, this next set of chapters had me screaming Jane Austen as a feminist icon alone in my bedroom because her response to this. So it felt icky to say just now the things that he was saying, but he is saying this stuff. And then he's like, but again, I don't mean to defend myself. Then again, stop talking. He says he should have been kinder to her for her affection to him, but he really wishes that none of it had ever happened since it led to him hurting Marianne. And Marianne is just so much smarter than her and prettier than her and just a better person. And at this, Eleanor just cuts him off. And she says, quote, your indifference is no apology for your cruel neglect of her. Bam, boom. She says he must have known how bad her situation was while he was off enjoying himself. Like, he, he must have known that he had left this girl pregnant and alone. And he's like, no, I didn't know. I, I gave her my address. She was too dumb to, like, look it up. Like, if, if, she, if I had forgotten to give her my address, but I'm pretty sure I did. But, you know, she's kind of dumb. Ugh. Okay. I'm not being coherent, but I get emotional about it. No, no, this is a good thing to get emotional about because... Uh... You know, Willoughby smearing a 14-year-old girl is a tough look for our guy. Tough look for our guy. And I really love that Eleanor came back at, like, just because you didn't like her as much as she liked you. And it doesn't mean that you can treat her that way. So we get to when Mrs. Smith finds out. And basically, Mrs. Smith found out and disowned him. She said, either you can marry this girl or you're not getting your estate. And he said, well, I'm not marrying her. Why, first of all? Oh, I mean, plenty of reasons. One is that he wanted to marry Rich. The other is that he's in love with Marianne. So if he had married Eliza, he would have been doing what Eddie had to do. Yes. And again, we'll return to that in study questions. But I think Jane Austen is being quite deliberate about this situation, especially comparing it to a Mr. Edward Ferrers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now he has no estate because he has been disowned because he refused to marry her. So he has to marry Rich. So he chooses Miss Gray. He debates at this point whether to send a note to Marianne or whether to go in person. And ultimately, he decides to go in person and just shatters Marianne's heart. He leaves, intending never to see her again. Eleanor, at this point, asks why he chose to come in person when a note would have done just as well. So I have to ask, do we prefer text breakups or in-person breakups? I'm a fan of a phone call, honestly. I agree. I agree. A text message, never. But like a call, I think, is akin to sending a note because they didn't have phones back then. (laughs) So that's my, my two cents. Oh, he probably did do the right thing by going in person. It's fascinating to see Willoughby try to do the right thing by Marianne. It is. Because he loves her. I know. And he has so many selfish instincts. And he's not a good person. It really turns my stomach. It's wild. This is like, this is a rant. I was going to say for the study questions, but I'll go for it. What's so fascinating about this is Jane Austen is making the argument that you can be in love and be a bad person. This is something that people say a lot. They're like, oh, no, that person doesn't really love you if they're like treating you badly. They don't really love you if you're being selfish. And Jane Austen saying, no, people can be in love. People can be really, really in love with you. 
and still not be good enough to be with you, mm-hmm. they can still be a very bad person, even if they love you an amount that'll make your heart melt. Yeah. People can still not show up for the occasion. People can still be selfish when they love you. And I think that is so smart and so astute. And I think it's underrated in the discourse of being like, no, that person can be in love with you and it can still be toxic and wrong. Yes. Something else that she's saying during this that is like in a similar vein is that you can feel remorse and still be a bad person too. You can do bad things and you can feel bad about them and apologize for them and you can keep on doing them over and over again. And that's what Willoughby does. And you can be the type of person who apologizes for what's gone wrong with the absolute knowledge that you fucked things up so badly that there is no apology. There is no way to fix the situation you've caused. So to exist with the knowledge that you have caused people who sometimes even you love such immense pain that they will never truly recover from is just something you have to live with. And that's what's so interesting about Willoughby as a character. He's not a good guy. He's not nice. But that's not the point. The point is that he was deeply in love with Marianne and has to live forever with the knowledge that he ruined her life. Yeah. It's an interesting story. It's a fascinating take on what it is to love someone and how being in love is just not enough. It's not. And and something else about Willoughby is that he is going to live with the knowledge that he's ruined Marianne's life forever and he's going to feel bad about it. But like three weeks earlier, he ruined this other girl's life forever and he doesn't feel bad about it at all. Because he's not a good person. And the only difference is that he's so in love with Marianne. Yeah. And also, but okay, so do we think that he's really in love with her or do we think that he's in lust with her? I feel like there's two different ways this could go. That's a good question. I I tend to think Willoughby's in love because he's lusting after Eliza. That's true. He lusts after her and he's lust is satiated, but he traveled across the English countryside when he found out she was dying to make sure that her last dying breath wouldn't involve her hatred of him. Yeah, but also that was a note that I had was that he said, I couldn't bear the thought that she was going to die hating me. That is a selfish way to go about it. It's a super selfish way to love. It's a super selfish way to love. She is dying and you're thinking, what does she think about me, 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 me? Exactly. Exactly. But it doesn't mean he's not in love with her. It means he's so enraptured with her, but it also means that he's a person who's a bad person who's in love. He's a selfish lover. He's a selfish lover. He's a pillow princess. Obviously a pillow princess. (laughs) Yes. Listeners, does everyone know what a pillow princess is? I, should, I hope so. My mom probably doesn't. We're going to have to explain. This is specifically for Molly's mom. Oh, no. A pillow princess is someone who, in the act of sex, does not put in any effort and makes the other person do all of the work because they have no interest in pleasuring their partner. <laughs> anyway, back to Jane Austen and love. Yeah, I think that's like, for me, this is like one of the big cruxes of the book, which is, like I said at the very beginning, a lot about the different ways we love each other, about the different facets and interesting pieces of love and what it means to be in love and what it means to be with someone. And Willoughby is giving us this whole new perspective on love in this chapter from the villain. Yeah. From the guy who ruined fucking everything. And we talked about different ways to love because we were talking about how Brandon loves and how Eleanor loves and how Marianne loves and how they all love in different ways and expect different things out of their relationships but they they are all focused on the other person 
and how that relationship is. But Willoughby is showing us that love can exist in a selfish way. And you can, a selfish person can love too because they're receiving. They're like, yeah, me, me, me. Yeah, a a selfish person can receive and experience all-consuming love and have that spin and spiral out of control. Someday, someday, we're going to read Wuthering Heights, which is my favorite book. And for listeners who love Wuthering Heights, you can imagine me talking about Wuthering Heights. But like that's that's what Willoughby is. You can you can talk a lot about lust and attraction and selfish behavior. But like, honestly, Jane Austen explores that through Wickham and Willoughby. I find a much more compelling villain because he's a villain with much more to him than simple greed and lust. Mm -hmm. He's a villain who wants things out of life, who wants specific things and passions out of life. And he finds them. And because of his own moral failings, he not only ruins his own chances of happiness, but also manages to hurt the only person in the world he's ever loved. Like, it's devastating. And it's so deserved. Tough look for our guy. Tough look for our guy, Willoughby. I'm so happy I'm discussing this chapter. <laughs> well, I started thinking about Wuthering Heights as a, as a neighborhood in Brooklyn or Manhattan. <laughs> Oh my God, that would be a bad neighborhood to live in. That would be, <laughs> it's like Wuthering Heights is um, very rural mm. and very steeped in deep family trauma. Wuthering Heights, the musical. Heathcliff, it's me. No, I'm not paying for the rights to that song. Is Heathcliff but... the name of the guy in Wuthering Heights? Yes. Oh. Do you know something? No, I just, on the Instagram, we follow a lot of kind of bookish accounts and I've seen some like Heathcliff memes and I always kind of just assumed that it was a Jane Austen character. Nope, that is an Emily Bronte man. Right, Bronte. All right, so same thing. (laughs) No! No! (laughs) Sorry, listeners finish her. No, I'm kidding. Our listeners won't finish me. No, the Brontes are very um, different in, in tone to Jane Austen. They are not exactly contemporaries, but contemporaries enough that everyone associates them together. But I actually kind of think it detracts from the work of both of them because uh, the Brontes were exploring something much darker than Austin was for the most part. No, I fully agree. That was mostly a joke because in my mind, it's just that it's the same people that are fans of both. This is actually a fun poll. Uh, If you are, you're clearly an Austin fan if you're listening to us. If you are a Bronte fan, give us a shout on Instagram. And we will see if you are just an Austin fan or an Austin and a Bronte fan. I personally think they're both awesome for different reasons. The Bronte sisters lend themselves to a different podcast because they are dark and sad all the time, whereas Jane Austen had a lot of fun being uh, witty and sarcastic. Y'all know Jane Austen's lighter than the Bronte sisters were. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, this is a tangent. Let's go back to this one very problematic man. Yes. So Willoughby says the reason he came to break up with Marianne in person was for his own pride. At least he is honest about that. Mm -hmm. He says he didn't want anyone finding out he had been disowned by Mrs. Smith. So he wallows about how he had just been thinking he was going to propose and how happy he was just the day before and then and then and now he's so full of guilt and blah. And then Eleanor asks if he had promised Marianne that he would return. And this bitch says he doesn't remember. He does not recall. I did not recall. So 
I don't really understand what he says next. He talks about how I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or not. He says that he like his misery is a comfort to him and he looks back on his sad times so fondly. Is he saying because he was less miserable then than he is now or is he saying this with sarcasm? Thank heaven it did torture me. I was miserable, Miss Dashwood. You cannot have an idea of the comfort it gives me to look back on my own misery. I owe such a grudge to myself for the stupid rascally folly of my own heart that all my past sufferings under it are only triumph and exultation to me now. Yes. Sarcasm? Or well, he's, he's saying like, oh, I wish I was like, I knew I was miserable then, but oh man, that was nice compared to what this is now. Okay. There's okay. also an element of um, self-loathing to this part. He hates himself so much that like the pain that he's in, he's there's an element of I deserve this, which he does, but... It's not cute when he says it. Good. At this point, Eleanor wants him to leave. So she's like, anything else? And he's like, yes. There's everything that happened when we got to London. The notes. So he tells her about how the note he received from Marianne was like a dagger to his heart. And to know she was in town was like a thunderbolt. Thunderbolts and daggers. And he muses on how Marianne would scold him for using such cliches. I would like thunderbolts and daggers on a t-shirt. I think that would be fun. I mean, I would buy that t-shirt. A sense and sensibility kind of like cover looking thing, but thunderbolts and daggers. I want it in quotation marks and just credited to a dramatic hoe. <laughs> thunderbolts and daggers. A dramatic hoe. Drama queen. So Eleanor starts to feel herself warming up to him because she start, you know, he's hating on himself so much, but she is like, come on. Don't forget, you're married. This is really improper that you're waxing poetic about my sister. So he continues about how knowing that she still loved him made him feel remorse for leaving her, which is what we were talking about. You can feel bad and still be bad. He says up till this point, he had been trying to kind of shrug off the whole thing and act like this didn't hurt him, that it meant nothing to him. He had tried to convince himself that one day he would hear she was married and he would be happy for her. All he had to do was keep avoiding them. So he sulked around London and watched them leave their house before he actually returned uh, her letter. And Eleanor was like, you watched us leave the house? And he's like, yeah, I watched you a lot, actually. Yeah, he's like really admitting to being uh, a creep and a weirdo here. Yeah. It's like the very awkward moment when you realize all that time Marianne was like, where's Willoughby? He's literally like 50 yards behind them. Just like. <sighs> More like weirdoby, am I right? More like weenie weirdoby, am I right? <laughs> Guys, do you like ween- weenie bee, weirdoby, weenie weirdoby, weirdo weenie bee? Weirdo weenie bee. These sound like names from Hey Arnold. <laughs> They do. Weenie Weirdoby. Do you think the kids still know what Hey Arnold is nowadays? Listeners, if you were born after the year 1999, do you know what Hey Arnold is? Please know what Hey Arnold is. It's great. When was Hey Arnold canceled? Wait. Hey Arnold. Do, 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 do. Do, do, do. Do, 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 do. Move it, football head. Bam, bam, bam. Hey Arnold aired on July 10th, 1996, and it plays on TV at... Between 2 and 3.30 in the morning. Well, I know what we're doing tonight. <laughs> and it had five seasons. It was canceled 2004. So, yeah, if you were born after... 2000. 2000, 
let us know if you know what Hey Arnold is. And if you don't, we have a homework assignment for you. It's a really stellar cartoon show. And anyway, back to... Back to Jane Austen. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I've been watching you a lot. I would like duck into stores if I saw your carriage coming. But one time I accidentally ran into John Middleton. And he invited me to a dance with the enticement that you would be there. So, of course, he didn't go because... And you remember this dance. Yes, the one that Marianne was like, Willoughby was invited. Why isn't he here? And we were, like, trying to figure out why he wasn't there. Well, were we or were you? (laughs) (laughs) I and and our listeners who were reading along for the first time. That's true. Thought that he just, like wasn't in I don't know what what I ended up saying but like he was actively avoiding her you thought he was ghosting her you were correct we called it the ghosting of Marianne Dashwood right yes look at me toss toss yeah you're getting so good at this thank you Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan is a podcast that treats romance as sacred You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. The next note... He received from Marianne was the note where she was like, where were you at this party? And it made him feel even worse and love her even more. And at this point, he begs Eleanor to pity him because he has to pretend to love another woman while only thinking of Marianne. And at this point reading, I was like, oh, that's why Eleanor is feeling bad for him, actually. Oh, yeah, because he's still in love with Marianne. And she's watching the same thing happen to Eddie. And to herself. And to herself. I mean, she doesn't have to act like she's in love with someone oh, else. Oh, no, no. But she has to act like she's not in love with Eddie. This book is... Nobody's doing well. No, no. Everyone is unwell. Either physically, emotionally, or both. Yes. You know who's doing great? Mrs. Mrs. Jennings. Jennings. <laughs> yeah. Well, at this point, she's actually... She's a little bit stressed. She thinks Marianne's about to die. No, no, Marianne's chill now. Oh, right, right, right. That all is fine. Yeah, you're right. So 
She's sleeping. Mrs. Jennings is sleeping right now, so that's good for her. Just have a great, great time. <laughs> She's having good dreams. Good dreams, Mrs. Jennings. Sweet dreams, Mrs. Jennings. That would be a really fun, like, spin-off series or, like, just, children's just, book. Mrs. Jennings' dream journal. Mrs. Jennings' dream journal. Tonight I dreamed that Charlotte had triplets, and they were named Mrs. Jennings and <laughs> Mrs. Jennings Jr., Oh boy. Okay, okay, okay. So then he talks about the party when he actually does see her and he explains how hard it was for him to turn her away and how at that moment she looked as white as death. And when he thought that she was really dying this morning, he pictured her looking just like that. And then in my notes, I was like, wait, what about the final letter? That's not the end of your story. And what did Eleanor say? And Eleanor says, what about your next letter? What do you have to say about that? And he says, okay, yes, I got her last letter, but my wife opened it and she got jealous and she wrote the response letter and had me copy it in my own handwriting and then return the hair and all of my mementos back to her. He is really trying to make his wife out to be a villain here. Well, to be fair, she probably did exactly that. But like, have have you ever known anyone who's caught their boyfriend cheating and didn't break up? It's exactly like that. It's like block this person on social media, never contact them again, make sure they know that you are taken and you are with me, like all this stuff. Generally, like if you choose to not break up with your boyfriend after he cheated on you, that is your business for sure. And if you feel like what will fix the relationship is cutting him off completely from the people he cheated with, then that's fine. I don't think it's necessarily a long-term solution. No, but I also don't think that she's at all at fault for any of this situation. Like, she's mad at him. Yeah. He married her, and then he was in love with another person who was in love with him. Like, sure, she could have dumped him, but she... Maybe she liked him. I don't know. Like, he doesn't have money, so she must like him a little bit, right? I mean, what else would she be marrying him for? I mean, I think probably because he's hot. That's that's fair. (laughs) But in any event, he's, like, going on about how she just, like, tore everything from him. And Eleanor, again, comes back with the feminism in a quote that I have to read. Go for it. You are very wrong, Mr. Willoughby. Very blamable. You ought not to speak in this way, either of Mrs. Willoughby or my sister. You have made your own choice. It was not forced on you. Your wife has a claim to your politeness, to your respect at least. She must be attached to you or she would not have married you. To treat her with unkindness, to speak of her slightingly, is no atonement for Marianne, nor can I suppose it a relief to your own conscience. And it does say that she says this with her tone betraying a little bit of the the emotions that she's feeling. The emotions she is feeling are feminism. Yes. Yeah, you're right. He goes on. He's like, don't talk to me about my wife. She did, She knew that I didn't love her when we got married. And it's like, that's that's no reason to be mean to her. Like, she might have known that, but she might have hoped. I don't know. We don't know this woman. Also, it just doesn't justify cheating or like no. being in love with another person. Like, Yeah, just... Uh, it's gross. Everything about the way that he's handling this is gross. And I can see a story in which, and I guess there is a story in which, in this book, someone gets married when they're in love with someone else, but does it for good reasons, does it with a pure heart. And that, my friends, is Edward Ferrer's, ah, who is not garbage, but is compost. 
Oh, oh, she is victorious. She is victorious in her finding. Ooh. Becca just put her hands up as if she had scored a touchdown. Yeah, I literally just like went like, Ooh, it's time. I've been waiting for this so long, listeners. I didn't even know I was going to say that just then. It just kind of came I out. I heard it coming and I was like, it's time. It's time. Eddie is not trash. Then Willoughby whines some more and asks if he's convinced her that his intentions were not always bad. And she says he's proved his heart less wicked, but that doesn't reduce the effects of his actions, which it does not. And I will stand by that. He is still a bad person. He asks her to tell Marianne everything when she's well again. And Eleanor says she will tell her what is necessary to, quote, what may comparatively be called your justification. I like that Eleanor is sticking to her guns here. She is not telling him that he is in the clear. She's like, we'll see. She asks why he came now, how he heard that Marianne was sick. He says, well, I was in Drury Lane, and I couldn't help but say, do you know the Muffin Man? The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man. My new headcanon is that Willoughby is the Muffin Man. Or actually, I suppose John Middleton would be the Muffin Man. I mean, he doesn't live on Drury Lane, but certainly he would probably make better muffins than Willoughby. Yeah, Willoughby's muffins would be like, I don't know, it's a bad kind of muffin. I like all muffins. I don't know. Muffins are great. They don't deserve the slander. You're right. Okay, so he was in Drury Lane and he sees John Middleton. And John Middleton, his, quote, good-natured, honest, stupid soul made him tell him that he was that Marianne was sick, knowing it would vex him. I just, I like good-natured, honest, stupid soul as, like, the new obstinate, headstrong girl. I mean, I am both of those things. Yeah, exactly. So, basically, John Middleton hates Willoughby so much, he's like, guess what? Your ex-girlfriend's dying. Which is, like, not the way to come back at someone. John Middleton's not great with the whole smack talk thing. No. But after seeing how Willoughby responds, he feels a little sorry for him, and then he's like, oh, remember when you promised me a puppy? So they're like, they're like cool now. And Willoughby couldn't bear knowing that Marianne was dying hating him, like we said. So he gets in his carriage and here he is. And now we're up to speed. Eleanor is just lost in thought over the whole thing. She's thinking over how his early independence, does that mean his his loss of his parents? Mm -hmm. That kind of led to him being idle and his idleness made him extravagant and vain. And how his vanity led to him falling for Marianne and his extravagance made him sacrifice his love for his money. Um, She's like going over all of this in her head. This doesn't make me feel bad for him. I think it's more the tragedy of him. Because it's all led, one thing led to another. Yeah, it's just sort of like, you're so close to being the kind of person who's who's correct, but all these circumstances conspired together to make you a bad one. And because of that, you you failed so dismally at being a person. Yeah. And she does say like that she's seeing some of his old self in him, like the the self that he presented to them, that at heart he is a good per like he has good qualities, not that he is a good person, but his good qualities are not being put to use, I guess. So, hmm, yes, she's thinking very philosophically about it. Finally, Willoughby says he has to go and he extends his hand and Eleanor gives him her hand and he says, do you think any better of me now? And she says she forgives him, she pities him and she wishes him well. And he says he will, quote, rub through the world as best he can. Aren't we all? I really hated that phrase. He says domestic happiness isn't in the cards for him, but if he ever finds himself single again and Eleanor is like, stop talking about when your wife dies or something 
Um, and he's like, okay. So he leaves. He says he's dreading the day that Marianne gets married, especially if it is to the person whom he could least bear, quote, but I will not stay to rob myself of all your compassionate goodwill by shewing that where I have most injured, I can least forgive. And then he runs away. At least he's self-aware about it. He's saying, like, if she marries Brandon, I'll be pissed, but I'm not going to go into that right now because I know that that makes me look really bad. Like, he lost, I, I know I've lost any say in the matter. Yes. So that's the end of that chapter. It's a doozy. That was a long one, but here we go. Chapter 45 or volume three, chapter nine. It's a much shorter one. Eleanor sits for a while just feeling bad for Willoughby, thinking about how he really does love Marianne, basically having all the same thoughts we just talked about for the last hour. Mm -hmm. She goes back upstairs to Marianne and she's feeling really happy because Marianne's feeling better and all this stuff. And then her mother's carriage arrives. She goes downstairs. Mrs. Dashwood is so happy. I want to be very, just just like return to something from last episode. You were convinced Mrs. Dashwood was just not going to come. I was convinced that Mrs. Dashwood was going to die. And she's fully fine. (laughs) Yes, but the way that they were leading up to it, I thought she and Brandon were overturned on the road. Oh no, they were fully just trying to make you nervous. And then it was Willoughby. Yes. So I was convinced that Mrs. Dashwood was going to be dead, but she arrives safe and sound and... She is so thrilled that Marianne's okay. She just can't even speak. She's just crying. And Eleanor and Colonel Brandon each take an arm and they support her into the house. And Eleanor looks over at Colonel Brandon and she sees this relief on his face too. And it's very beautiful. And he doesn't say anything. Mrs. Dashwood goes into mom mode and she doesn't want to keep Marianne awake. So she just sits up with her and she tells Eleanor to go to bed. Eleanor just lies in bed and thinks about, quote, poor Willoughby and blames herself for judging him too harshly before. And now that's going a little too far for me. Yeah, Eleanor gets a little bit mm, in this one chapter, but it's like, she she does a good job of counterbalancing Willoughby while he's there. But it, for a moment, I'm like, mm, Jane Austen, a little, little too light on Willoughby for a second. I know, there was a brief moment, and I wasn't even going to bring it up, but the way that she keeps talking about how bad she feels for Willoughby, there was a brief moment reading this where I was like, hang on. Are we going to flip-flop again? And by flip-flop again, I mean, am I going to think that we're going to flip-flop again? Because I used to think that we were going to flip-flop lovers. And I thought for a minute, is Eleanor starting to feel something for Willoughby? Oh my God, stop. I really did. I had a full 30 seconds while I was reading this where I thought that. I got over it really fast. But yeah, I'm not even going to entertain that. (laughs) So she's lying there. She's thinking about how she's nervous to tell Marianne because she knows that once Marianne hears that Willoughby really loves her, she will never be happy with anyone else. And Eleanor really wants her to be happy with anyone else. I wanted to know that Marianne or that Eleanor keeps getting put in the position where she's has to tell people life-changing things. Yeah, it's because Eleanor is just like the quintessential friend who listens. Yeah. Like every group has one where like ev- that one friend who knows everyone's deep innermost secrets mm-hmm. and they just hold all the cards and they never use them. Yep. And for a moment, Eleanor wishes that Mrs. Willoughby would die and leave Willoughby a widower so that he could be with Marianne. And I and she's like, what? And I was like, Eleanor, Jesus Christ. But then she thinks about Brandon and she's like, no, Marianne should end up with him, not Willoughby. And I and this was weird for me. I didn't like the way that we were talking about Marianne. She was thinking about like the prize of her sister and which man was going to get her. And I was like, that's I, I know that that's not what that's not the intent with which she's thinking it. But it, I didn't like reading it. It's it's weirdly phrased, but I do think Austin is getting at the fact that Eleanor thinks her sister is 
like deserves the world and at the end of the day as much as Willoughby loves her he'll never deserve her but what's weird is that later on in this chapter we'll get there and I'll come back to this so I'll just keep going it turns out that Mrs. Dashwood had read into all of Eleanor's letters to her and had been planning to come anyway she was really nervous about Marianne and she had already set up child care for Margaret. I'm really glad we at least got to know where Margaret was. Oh, yeah. She's not, like, alone in the cottage. Yes. Justice for Margaret. Mrs. Dashwood is really happy at how much Marianne is improving over the next few days. And Eleanor wonders if she's forgotten what happened with Eddie. But Mrs. Dashwood simply refuses to think about anything that won't make her happy. She's a little mad at herself, though, for encouraging Marianne's attachment to Willoughby since it led to this illness. She tells Eleanor then that Brandon is in love with Marianne. She tells her this like as if Mary Eleanor doesn't know. She's like, guess what? <laughs> I know. It's it's really fantastic. Yeah. She's like, oh, guess what I found out in the car ride here? Brandon's in love with Marianne. And Eleanor is like, oh. And, and, and then Mrs. Dashwood is like, oh, you're not fun. <laughs> like, why are you excited about this? She tells her. She would love for Brandon to marry either of her girls. She thinks that Marianne will be the most happy with him. And I really want to know why she thinks that. And Eleanor says, why do you think that? Or she almost asks her, why does she think that? She thinks it can't be based on their age or either of their characters or their feelings, or at least not on Marianne's feelings towards him. And I'm at this point, I was wondering, like, does Eleanor not think that they would be good together? Not necessarily. I don't I don't think Eleanor thinks it's a bad match. I think Eleanor thinks that Marianne has very specific ideas about who she should be in love with and Colonel Brandon does not match those ideals. Right. And Marianne is known to stick to her guns on these sort of things. Yes, absolutely. So we are going to get into a description shortly of why Brandon is good for Marianne, but Marianne doesn't see him that way. And Eleanor knows that she doesn't see him that way. And yet she still is rooting for him, but she's not really rooting for them. It's not so much that Eleanor wants Marianne coerced into this. No. It's more that Eleanor sees Marianne as sort of having blinders on. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor wishing that there's something that could happen where she could just remove that little layer of cotton over her eyes. Yes. And see what she's wanted is in front of her in a package she didn't expect. Right. Mrs. Dashwood tells Eleanor that Brandon kind of spilled all of his feelings to her on their journey. But actually what happened was Mrs. Dashwood was freaking out about Marianne being sick in the car and she looked up and Brandon was also freaking out and she thought he must be in love with her. It just happens to be true. That's honestly pretty valid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's how Brandon tells his feelings to people that he's not close with, like he's close with Eleanor and actually tells his feelings to. Um, He just reacts. Brandon's barely said I'm in love with Marianne to Eleanor she's just reading it I think he's made it pretty clear he has made it super clear but like a lot of it is that he'll say stuff like ah yes your sister deserves like wonderful love your sister reminds me of my ex like all this stuff he hasn't been like I would want to marry your sister if she were available fair 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 Mrs. Dashwood goes on about how good a person he is and how much he's in love with Marianne and Eleanor's like okay that's true but he's also a really good person outside of that and you can like ask Mrs. Jennings and the Middletons and me like we're really good friends and if Marianne could be happy with him then that would be a really good connection for all of us she then asks if Mrs. Dashwood gave him hope of Marianne's hand and Mrs. Dashwood says he didn't actually ask but she did tell him that time would make Marianne get over Willoughby 
But Brandon, Eleanor points out, doesn't seem any happier about that now than he, like, usually is. And Mrs. Dashwood says, quote, He thinks Marianne's affection too deeply rooted for any change in it under a great length of time. He might also think that because of the amount that both Eleanor and Marianne have made it clear that Marianne believes in first love only. Yes, they do talk about that quite a bit. Happened a while ago in the book, but was very significant. Yeah, he's like been thinking about it this whole time. (laughs) He's overanalyzing it still. Yeah. (laughs) Brandon. Brandon. Also, he thinks he's too old for her, but Mrs. Dashwood doesn't think he's too old. She goes on about how he isn't as handsome as Willoughby, but he's kinder. And and anyway, there's always been something in Willoughby's eyes that she didn't like. And she's like, don't you remember? I didn't always like him. And Eleanor's like, no. Frankly, my mother does this too. I always hated him. (laughs) You know what? I think that the the Dashwoods are probably canonically Jewish. She's a Jewish mother. (laughs) If anybody's Jewish in this book, it's Mrs. Mrs. Jennings. Jennings. She's a bubby to end all bubbies. Sense and sensibility. Sense and sensibility, yeah. Yeah. Mrs. Dashwood then goes on to say how gentle Brandon's disposition is. And this is the part I wanted to read out loud about why he is a good match for Marianne. Which I'm still not 100% sold on, but I understand where we're coming from with this description. And his manners. The colonel's manners are not only more pleasing to me than Willoughby's ever were, but they are of a kind I well know to be more solidly attaching to Marianne. Their gentleness, their genuine attention to other people, and their manly unstudied simplicity is much more accordant with her real disposition than the liveliness, often artificial and often ill-timed, of the other. I am very sure myself that had Willoughby turned out as really amiable as he has proved himself the contrary, Marianne would yet never have been so happy with him as she will be with Colonel Brandon. This gets back to the idea of taste that we talk about like way early on in the book and how we talked about Marianne being so in love with Willoughby because he shared all of her tastes, like her her tastes for the beauty and sensuality of the world and all of this stuff. But taste can be more refined And I think that Colonel Brandon and his sensibilities, they're not so over the top and put on as Willoughby's are. They are like he silently appreciates all the same things that Marianne appreciates loudly. And that's what she really has lying underneath all of it. I mean, I think it gets to something very nuanced. I think taste is something that we form over years and we all have personality traits we go for and things we picture in our significant others. And then when we go and we get out in the world and date, we find a lot of the things we were looking for are actually placeholders for what we actually really need in a partner. Like, for example, liking someone who's got a flippant and immature sense of humor is a stand-in for someone who lightens the mood and makes you laugh. But being a flippant, immature person doesn't mean you're funnier than everybody else. It just means that you, you might make a person feel you know, bad enough about themselves to feel like they're not in on the joke correctly. But then if you figure out what you actually wanted from them in the first place, it's a lot stronger. So in this case, you have Marianne's love for poetry and her desire to be with someone who shares that and her desire to be with someone who's frothing at the mouth to be with her versus, you know, someone like Brandon. And Marianne's looking for someone to really profoundly love her, to love her and for her to love back. And Brandon's love is quieter and simpler, but it's much more steadfast Mm -hmm. and much more true. And no matter how much Willoughby actually loves her, he can't offer her that. Yeah, I think we agree on this. 
the only thing that I will say that is keeping me from fully shipping Marianne and Brandon. I am shipping Brandon with anyone. I think he deserves a big shiny world. He just, he's the best. I think Marianne deserves really good stuff too. And like that, they both deserve really good things. But I still haven't seen them talk to each other. (laughs) That's fair. That's really, really fair. There is still some book left, but yeah. There's still some book left, but I'm like, we are, we are running out. Yeah. So anyway, we are almost done. So at this point, Mrs. Dashwood is like, you know, Marianne will be at Delaford. Maybe we should move closer to Delaford. And then she gives Eleanor a kind of meaningful look. And Eleanor's like, oh God, why does everyone want me to go to Delaford? And lastly, Mrs. Dashwood says, she doesn't know how big his fortune is and she doesn't really care But she knows it must be a good one because she's heard that he's rich. But she like she like genuinely doesn't care, which is, again, like we love Mrs. Dashwood. I kind of had forgotten because she's been out of the book for so long, but she is such a good mom. She loves her daughter so much. She just wants them to be happy. Mm -hmm. I love it. And then a third person enters. They don't specify. Jane Austen got really tired as she was ending this chapter. And she goes, a third person came in. To be fair, she did just write a marathon of a chapter. So she must have been tired. A third person comes in and Eleanor is like, all right, I'm going to go be by myself. And she just goes and she feels bad for Willoughby in a corner. And I don't understand it, but that's the end of those chapters. Which brings us to Becca's study questions after what has been a doozy of a two chapters. So we talked about a lot of the stuff in these study questions already, but we will reiterate some points. Willoughby's story is fresh in the Austin world. We've talked about it a little bit, but let's like talk about it a little bit more. How is it different? Like you said, he is a villain. And he says over and over again, I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm not trying to justify myself. And he doesn't justify himself because he's still a villain. But we do get to know a bit of his motivation. And it's wild that love was involved in the picture. It's not a big reveal. I feel like a lot of these stories that the men get to do are like a big reveal about their past, like Brandon had, or like Darcy has about Wickham. It's just basically what we already knew, which was I was just trying to bang. Then I caught feelings. But then I then I was poor. We did find out that he was disowned, which is a big thing. Like he lost his money. Yeah, it does. It does point us towards um, a couple things. One, obviously, economics of dating in Jane Austen. Grand the sound effect. Uh, we have yet another man who uh, is forced to make a financial decision about marriage over a love decision about marriage, which is less common for men in this time period, but still exists as an impediment to them in society. Now. Willoughby makes it clear that it's because he wants to be ultra rich, not because he wants to like not starve, but it's definitely still, he's still hindered by his own capacity to, to wed. And on top of that, um, I also think it's worth noting, we didn't bring this up before, but is this not like everybody's fantasy that their ex who blew them off, like caught feelings the whole time and is going to spend the rest of his life miserable about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also that he was following them throughout London, trying to avoid them because he was embarrassed that he was a dick. I mean, we call this the yo-yo where like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like where you date for someone for a while and then they like break up with you in a really shitty way. And, and then, then like three weeks later, they text you and they were like, I fucked up. No, it's like three months later and you've gone through your breakup morning process and like you're on to something else and they like sense you're on to something else. 
and then they DM you at one in the morning. They always can sense when you are thriving and they want to bring you down. Exactly. That's what Willoughby's doing, although Marion's not really thriving right now, shall we say, but... To be fair, it is a little bit kind of sweet that he, without knowing what he was doing, got in a car and came to see her. That's why Marion fell in love with him in the first place. He's a romantic. He is. Mm -hmm. He's just a bad guy. Jane Austen's kind of shitting on romantic guys here. What's terrible and that we have talked about is that I would date this man. That actually leads me to my next question, which you already answered very, very fully. But do you like him now? And do you think Austen wants you to? I don't think Austen wants me to. I think he really wants me to. And I don't. I don't. I get why we're feeling bad for him a little bit. But like... It is interesting to examine why do we still hate him, but when the same thing, when Eddie does the same thing, we are like, oh, but you're so sweet. It it does come down to ultimately how they feel about the fact that they're doing it, I think. Well, I would also, uh, this brings me to my next question, which is how does Willoughby's story relate to the other men in the book? And this is where I'm going to talk a bit about Edward and Willoughby, because there's a huge distinction between these two men. And it really boils down to what makes Eleanor love Edward and ultimately what makes Willoughby hateable and unworthy of Marianne. Selfishness versus selflessness. And like, I don't think it's Edward's being perfect in the situation either, but both Edward and Willoughby compromised a woman's honor in an era where compromising a woman's honor actually kind of wrecks her socially and financially. And... Obviously, it's not clear that Edward did so to the same extent that Willoughby did, but he certainly did. Now, Edward feels duty-bound to this woman he doesn't particularly care for, who's poor and doesn't do anything for social standing, but moreover, is not the woman he's deeply in love with. But he is stuck by her and has decided to stay there because he knows that society will tank her after what he's done. So... That is Edward being a little too bound by duty. Willoughby's the exact opposite. Willoughby compromised a woman and didn't give a crap about it. He went off, he fell in love with somebody else, and he lost everything because he refused to do what Edward did. Compromise the woman you love to do your duty and to honor a a girl you've wronged. Willoughby loses everything, and that's when Willoughby decides to marry on up, and so he ends up losing the love of his life anyway through his selfishness. Now, they're both in a pickle. Yes. But what Eddie's trying to do is sacrifice everything around him to make it right by societal standards. What Willoughby is doing is blowing everything up for the sake of trying to get what he wants. That's the complete opposite in some ways, even though they're in very similar situations. And I think Jane Austen is trying to juxtapose the two of them against each other to try to show just why... Eddie is compost and Willoughby's garbage. What's interesting is that they both got disowned, one of them for doing the right thing and one of them for not doing the right thing. And I think that goes to their families because I think Mrs. Smith ultimately is a good person who was like, marry this girl. And he was like, I don't want to. And the fairers is, are the fair eye? The fair eye. Are bad people. Exactly. So... It's it's a matter of intention. And Eddie's intentions are so good and they're hurting him and Willoughby's intentions are so bad and they've smote him. So, you know, I think that 
Willoughby's a really great reason to like Eddie because you see what happens if Eddie's not on the path he's on. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, okay. What do you think Marion's reaction to Willoughby's story is going to be? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm right with Eleanor that Marianne is never going to be happy with anyone else unless she's able to do what we just did and write out her pros cons list and really be like, why did he show up now when I was unconscious versus when I could have actually been with him? Like, if she can do that, she might be like, he lost his chance. But the thing is, like, I don't think she was fully over him. I mean, she's not fully over him. And when they get you right at that time and you're not fully over them. Tricky Dan. It's a tricky time. But I also know how much is left in this book. So I feel like she's going to have to somehow either choose the right man or choose no man at all. Because she's not ending up with him. He sucks. He sucks. All right. Um, so we have a dark horse moment for Brandon as a suitor. What do you think about where we get that moment in juxtaposition to Willoughby? What do you mean? Well, I mean that, you know... Brandon's brought the mother when she's on her deathbed. Um, the mother's on board. His The sister's on board. Like, it's all coming to get up Brandon at this moment. Yes, it is all coming up Brandon. What do you think of how we find out about these pieces of the story in juxtaposition to where we learned about Willoughby's side of the story? I think that Willoughby, we have pity for him, but we don't want him to end up with Marianne. We do not stand. We do not stand. And I don't think ultimately I know that Eleanor like is feeling bad for him, but I think ultimately she doesn't want him to end up with Marianne either because he, then she would have, for one, she would have a stepdaughter, which big lol would be weird. Um, or like a sort of a stepchild. I don't know. Her husband would have a bastard child. Yes. Is what would have happened. So, and like, that would just be weird. I like, I want, I want Willoughby to go have to reckon with her. So I think he's not looking too hot right now. And everyone is turned against him because he basically drove Marianne almost to her grave. So I think that Brandon showing up at this time selflessly just to help out the Dashwoods, like that is really good timing for him. Yeah, him. I I really think this chapter highlights like the selflessness of Brandon versus the selfishness of Willoughby. Brandon is out there, like, immediately going to get hit to escort Marion's mother to her bed while she's dying. Like, he's, without a hope or a prayer of her ever being with him, out there trying to make sure she is comfortable in what very well might be her last days of life. And driving himself insane, trying to make her happy in that time. She could have died while he was gone. She could have. And he's, you know, gone to get her mother. Yeah. It's very sweet. And he has no hope. Like, he is not thinking about it for himself at all. Whereas Willoughby, on the other hand, like, they both hopped in carriages and drove in opposite directions. Willoughby, because he didn't want Marianne dying thinking that he was a bad person. (laughs) And Brandon, because he didn't want her dying without her mother. Yeah, exactly. So it's an easy decision. Yeah, and this is another thing. Again, going towards what love is and how we experience it. Again, you have the passion of Willoughby, the the immense chemistry between Marion and Willoughby. But at the end of the day, it's all kind of for shit if he's a bad person. And we do have a little agency over where our hearts land and landing on 
someone like Colonel Brandon is like the best decision anyone can make because we love Colonel. Oh my God, I can't wait to watch this movie. <laughs> oh, you are not ready. So we're just going to go to the standbys. Uh, funniest quote. So this is Mrs. Dashwood. She's going on. There was always a something, if you remember, in Willoughby's eyes at times, which I did not like. Eleanor could not remember it, but her mother, without waiting for her assent, <laughs> continued. <laughs> That's a fantastic uh, choice. Uh, questions moving forward? All right, we've got not a lot of chapters left. So so who is Marianne going to choose when she wakes up if she chooses anyone at all? I kind of, kind of am rooting for her to take some time after her deathbed to just, like, chill out and not choose a man. But is she going to end up with anyone... We, again, we don't have that many chapters left. So, like, Eleanor, Edward, where's, who's, where is he? What's going to happen there? Like, I really want everyone to have their happy endings, but we're just running out of time for them to happen in a reasonable way that doesn't leave a bunch of side characters brokenhearted. You know? Yes. Um, who wins the chapters? Um, Brandon. Sure. He went and got her mother and brought her back. Oh, no. Uh, Ellen, mm, mm, Eleanor was fooled a little bit by Willoughby, which I didn't love. Willoughby probably came out on top in these chapters because he convinced Eleanor that he wasn't so bad. Brandon brought Mrs. Dashwood. Mrs. Dashwood is alive and there and is being an awesome mom. So I'm going to give it to like both Mrs. Dashwood and... And Colonel Brandon. I all right. The the cavalry coming in after the Willoughby sob story. Yeah. All right, listeners, that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. For next episode, you're gonna read chapters 46 through 48. And until next time, stay proper. And find yourself someone selfless. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.